You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. And I'm Mark. And tonight we are going to be discussing the Crimson Horror and asking the question, has Mark Gatiss made up for past discretions <laughs> or not? But first, one email and we'll save the rest of the feedback to the end of the episode. But I like this email, so I'm going to read it out now. It's from Doc Whom. And he says, Dear all, I've just heard a rumour from a contact in the podcasting world and I'd be interested to get your views. The rumour is that the second anniversary episode of the Blue Box podcast will be called The Name of the Writer and will be where we finally get an answer to the question that's in plain sight. The question being, what do the initials JR stand for? (laughs) This, This obviously has been written slightly before the last episode. Yeah, quite. (laughs) He says, I've also heard that it'll be a multi-JR story with several of his incarnations making an appearance. Which JR JR incarnations do you think will have signed up for it? The crotchety yet lovable old git? (laughs) The cosmic hobo who doesn't seem to know what he's doing half the time? The patronising... Just those two. Oh, well, wait till you hear the rest. (laughs) The patronising establishment figure who says things like, you understand these things when you're a writer. you sure this isn't your missus under a pseudonym? You're a very funny man, Mark. (laughs) I'm laughing on the inside. Uh, The one whose time on the podcast was marked by constant friction between his companions, Mm. and I guess by that he means his co-podcasters. Oh, the next one's a good one. The postman from Withmail and I. (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. Oh, yes. The one who held that lots of planets keep flipping back and forth between West Country and Northern. Or, finally, the one that all the female podcast audience go totally hormonal over. That's that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> he actually then goes on to say, I must say that I can't ever remember having heard that last one. Maybe for me, his era was that time we've all had when we first discovered sex and stopped listening to the podcast for a few years. <laughs> Whatever it is, he says, I can't wait. Best wishes, Doc Whom. Oh, bless him. That, that, could, be a, that could be a future incarnation, Joe. You never know. Well, the one that the female audience flipped the hormone- over? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't believe the rudeness that I get from you guys. <laughs> it's meant with love. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Is it? Probably the oh, wrong yeah. kind of That's love. Right. <laughs> Not um, that kind of love. Guys, we're running late and uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Nobody wants to know why we're running late, but we are running late. Technical problems. Let's get straight to the episode. Uh, the Crimson Horror. Mm. What did we make of this? Mark, what did you make it of this? It was all right. Hang on, you're Lee. <laughs> 
Go on, Mark. Mark, you go first. It was very League of Gentlemen, which is unsurprising considering it's written by Mark Gatiss. Yes. Um, I liked having Strax and uh, Vastra and Jenny back. They're likeable characters. It was the first time they've been written by anybody other than Stephen Moffat, I think. Hmm. And Mark Gatiss actually did a good job of it. And Diana Rigg was better used than well, the, uh, the guest um, cast in, uh, in uh, Cold War, I thought. Yes, yes, absolutely. Lee, quick flavour of your opinion? It was a game of two halves, really, wasn't it? I mean, it was. Um, it started off all full of atmosphere, very Mark Gatiss. He's very good with atmosphere and not very good with really good plots. Um, and it kind of worked really well. I, I loved that first half. It was mysterious and it was um, filmed beautifully as always in this new series. Um, and then for some reason it kind of lost its go the second half and we had this you know, crazy mad person um, a la kind of chase and it didn't quite work, I don't think. You know, nicking the idea of the, the poison sky and uh, and all these other kind of very old-fashioned cliches um, about poison in the sky and you know changing everybody. It, it didn't really work. But within the actual episode, there were some beautiful moments, and he's very good at good concepts and beautiful moments. And there's a lot of those. Do you? Uh, <laughs> don't think the first. Th- I'm laughing at the fact that you're just describing everything as beautiful again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. Um, <laughs> did you not think that the first half itself was just as cliched? Well, yeah, uh, but it was done with style. <laughs> well, I wouldn't... I'd do, Mark, do you think it tailed off at the end? Uh, I think it was pretty consistent throughout. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought what you had at the start and what you got at the end, I thought it, I thought it added up altogether to generally much better plotted and much more you know it seemed to flow a lot better than most of Mark Gage's yeah. other stuff it seemed to work fine yeah. I thought yeah yeah okay okay it did it did I mean it did work fine it worked fine as a story it wasn't cut entirely in half what I kind of meant was that you had um the start of the story with um the doctor um uh, being affected by something you're not knowing what the monster is and you realize it's the doctor and all that sort of thing it's, mm-hmm. it's a good mystery you've got the scooby-doo gang ready to do something and then you know the second half is kind of like a bit of a not even a runaround it's just a some kind a of face-off mad, mad woman's diatribe isn't it about <laughs> taking over the world well it's a it's a face-off between the villain and the doctor which is good. I'm glad we got a villain back. Um, but, yeah. um And she is very good at it. But there's, I don't know, I was missing something. I don't, can't quite put my finger on it. It's a Mark Gatiss script. Of course it was missing something. <laughs> Here's the question, though. As compared to Victory of the Daleks, Cold War, and The Idiot's Lantern, was this, or was this not, a better Mark Gatiss script? I think it really suited um, Mark Gatiss' style. I think it's the first time that a script by Mark Gatiss has been um, been brought out by the director and allowed by Stephen Moffat to be completely Mark. 
because I think when he wrote Un- Unquiet Dead, he was a bit disappointed it turned out to be a bit of a romp, and I think he wanted to make it like this one, a bit more creepy. Um, and uh, I think this is very true to what Mark is heading for as his kind of perfect script, um, because it is set in Victorian times, and it's got that League of Gentlemen thing going on. It is well, dark. it's and a it's hammer got... horror pastiche is what it, it is. It is a hammer it? horror, yeah, definitely a hammer in horror. In fact, all yeah. that stuff with... Uh... The uh, grill and feeding the monster behind the closed door mm-hmm. is straight mm. out of the ghoul. It is an absolute rip-off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, oh my God, the uh, doctor walking around covered in red with stiff arms and legs was straight out of <laughs> Carry On Screaming. <laughs> it was yeah, just... Uh, exactly. That's it what we said, a, actually, me and Mark, when they were dipping yeah. people into the red stuff. We said that's like them dipping in, into the wax or whatever it is and carry on screaming. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was absolutely like carry on screaming meets the hammers meets... League of Gentlemen is, you know, exactly that, isn't it? Mm. League of Gentlemen is just this big old pastiche of all these old horror stories and horror movies specifically and all the cliches of the genre and everything else. I mean, he's done the... Um, you know, the monster in the attic behind the grating before in the League of Gentlemen as well, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. In the mm. shop. You know, mm. it's... Uh, it's. I wouldn't say it's Mark Gatiss by numbers, but it's Mark Gatiss on home territory doing what Mark Gatiss does. Well, he's definitely in his comfort zone, isn't he? He's got those yeah. sort of classic horror tropes. I thought the um, one of the creepiest things was the uh, those kind of glass jars that they had them suspended in. I thought that was quite effective yeah well well that would would be uh the reason for me using the word beautiful because i know that's a great concept it's a fantastic idea i don't think i've ever seen that actual image of people whole people being in those bell jars that they use in the victorian times uh mm-hmm. to you know to put stuffed birds in and things like that on twigs and uh, i just love the idea that they're there in there being protected by the poison of the world that this woman's about to release that's actually quite a a neat idea and beautifully again that word um <laughs> it could be used as a, a a great picture in a graphic novel I, you know if you turn the page and that was a whole pager you begin oh that's cool so yeah enjoyed that one and of course we got another uh, little nod to the past in this one they like to chuck them in oh He's yeah about trying to get a gobby shall Australian we back uh, to uh... no let's come back to that all right <laughs> <laughs> you two do you like wandering off you don't like talking about something uh, for any <laughs> s- sustained period of time. We'll just go straight on to the next thing. That's the way like, our brains whoa, whoa, work, whoa. Let's talk more about Mark Gatiss' script. Mm-hmm. I mean, apart from the... F- yeah, well, apart, I was going to say, apart from the fact that it's Mark Gatiss on home territory, what he's also not trying to do here, he's not writing like real people. He's not trying to be remotely authentic. I mean, all the characters in this, pretty much, are kind of... Unlike in, say, Cold War, where all the characters are ciphers, in this one they're clichés. Almost like caricatures, aren't they? Yeah, and that's an entirely different thing. And Mm. because of that, he can actually write them with more authenticity than he does when he's not trying to write clichés because it's just more natural for him. And actually, unlike in Cold War, when you couldn't feel a damn thing for any of the characters, in this one, Rachel Sterling's character, yeah. you can actually feel something for her, even mm, though yeah. she's just a hammer horror cliché. Mm. Um, this is the blind woman you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
yeah, she, she was a great creation in this, and she was, it was well acted and very believable. And this this is what I kind of I'm liking in the new um, Who stuff is that the, all the actors are taking it a bit more seriously, and you know they're acting in a grown up kind of way as opposed to trying to be a little bit childish. And oh, it's Doctor Who, so we need to dumb it down a bit. Um, you know, the last I think uh, Mark Gatiss, it's Idiot's Lantern, Mark Gatiss's last one of the last scripts, and um, it was the father. Um, of the kid he was such a terrible actor and it was such a, a hokey bunch of lines he had to say as well that you just think oh that's awful so I think what Mark's done is yeah you're right he's, he's got the cliches in the bag and he's writing um, really good kind of little storylines for them and they've been well acted so it, it does it does come out it's uh, she's got the best I think kind of storyline out of the whole whole lot I love Diana Rigg though <laughs> especially doing that broad Yorkshire accent. I'm a bit disappointed they didn't have the um, the cat suit. Well, they did have the cat suit. <laughs> they had it on Jenny. That's true. That's true. And how, how in fact, they had the look? moment. They had the moment where she reveals it and the expression on the doctor's face, mm. which and I think sonic screwdriver. Yeah, to, to which I think I clapped and shouted and whooped, and then the cat on Amy's lap flew off into the kitchen. That's yeah, Mark's our poor little cat, lady, brother. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, what did you? Speaking of which, though, did you find it amusing? Yeah, I thought uh, there was, the comedy was well placed within the story. It didn't mm-hmm. detract from the creepiness of it. No, I found it a rather amusing. Do you know what? Comedy. Yeah, yeah, it was there? Were, there was a, a huge a laugh few... out loud moment. Yeah, there were a me few. Me and Mark just bellowed. Do, can you guess one? what it is? It was the one with the horse. <laughs> oh, the horse straps. moment was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so well. It well, was yeah. so well timed. The comedy was good. There were a few moments of broad humour. The guy who kept fainting. Yeah, that yeah, was quite twice broad. It, twice it worked. The last time it didn't. No, I thought the last one was a nice sign-off because the other two times were both at the start of the episode, which kind of set it up, mm. and then at the end of the episode, which is like a good half an hour later, mm. if not more. I think it's just a nice little payoff. It's just a nice little reminder, a callback. Do you know what they could have done? They missed a trick there. Because he's falling backwards out of scene, what they could have done is just it's just an homage to Wurzel Gummidge and have him fall different ways off the <laughs> side of the screen. <laughs> it's enough they're putting in old Doctor Who without putting Gummidge in there as well. <laughs> yeah, not just old Doctor Who. Old Doctor Who, old Hammer and old Carry On. <laughs> what did I you think? I... Sorry, carry on. Go on. I thought the little kid was quite funny as well. Oh, Thomas, Tom, Thomas, Tom, Tom. Yeah, that was that bit was a bit of a gro- groany funny. moment, wasn't it? Yeah. On, yeah. on the, yeah. I tell you what, it was, it, it was Jenny's episode, though, wasn't it? Far mm. more than Vastra or Strax. Mm. Mm. She's usually the one who gets sidelined a little yeah. bit, and actually, in this one, she's brought in centre stage, and she was excellent. Yeah, new companion, please. Well, I think we've just had the new companion. I'm afraid, Lee. Really? You want him to get rid of Clara already? No, no, but she's ready for the next line-up, isn't she? So. You wouldn't prefer a spin-off show where she and Vastra and Strax are right at the centre of every episode? Well, I would, but I don't know whether that's going to happen, is it? It probably would have done five well, years ago when the BBC had money. I think I enjoy seeing them on screen together. I'm not sure whether well, it I would could be take that you. every week. It would be set in Victorian England. Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't know. Uh, people are saying they think this is uh, Stephen Moffat trying to backdoor pilot for a spin-off show. I'm not Why so not? sure, but 
Why not? I love it. I love the idea of it. I think it's great. It's like, uh, you know, the, it's a freak show. Um, um, what's the word? A crime investigation freak show set in the Victorian age. Sounds like a great idea to me. <laughs> yes. Like Sherlock Holmes, but with a lizard and a potato yeah. and a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it could work. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. They're not Jago and Lightfoot by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. No, I mean, Strax is funny. And Vastra, Nev McIntosh is a great actress. And Vastra is an interesting character. And now that Jenny's come to the fore, all of a sudden she's uh, almost on an equal footing with the other two. So possibly it could work. I wouldn't like to swear to it. It's, it is a good um, threesome. They do bounce off each other quite well. Um, Mark, calm down. But um, I'm not entirely sure it is a threesome because two of them are lesbians, so it's hardly unlikely <sighs> they'd find any use for Strax. Well, you, you never know. Um, <laughs> Strax is very confused, though. He does tend to confuse boys and girls, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. just one more note. Just one more note on the humour. Um, Strax is, you know, is used as the, the kind of the, the comedy uh, throughout, but um, mm. it, it was really quite. He's been quite consistent every time he's been on show. Um, and he is quite strong still, and he's funny because he's he's true to character of a Sontaran. On there was a, a last moment where he was told off almost like a school kid, and he had to sulk and walk away. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that that just didn't work well with me. I just thought, no, he he probably wouldn't do that. It's just it was just the reaction was wrong. But anyway, that's my own little. They got a laugh out of it. That's going to annoy me every time I watch it over the next twenty years. <laughs> what I we- found though was that a lot of the humour came out of well, came out of Strax and. The, you know the characters but there was less humor coming out of the plot than i kind of expected mm. really it, it was like he'd married he'd married these humorous characters onto and this is the bizarre thing onto a very straight narrative even though that straight narrative was all pastiche so he played the pastiche yeah. really straight and mapped the comedy characters onto the top of it which was odd and on the topic of which, what did you think of... Well, two things. First, what did you think of Matt Smith's stiff-as-a-board acting? <laughs> I thought um, it was really, really good. The first time I saw it and his mouth was open, I thought, oh, this is this is great. He's actually in proper peril. He's been locked up. He's red. He's, he's stiff-as-a-board. He's got wooden-looking skin. Um, and then as he was moving down the corridor, uh, the first part, when you can see him from behind and he's got, you know, it's almost like he's, wearing, he's got crystal balls going on. And you think, yeah, he is, uh, he's, he's, it's good, I believe this. And then suddenly when he's kind of pointing and things, his mouth's starting to relax a bit and you think, come on, yeah. come on, Matt, <laughs> keep it up. <laughs> so you And then he can lift not. his arm with the sonic screwdriver and it's like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. No, and uh, that was that was the moment when I just thought, no, that's too easy. That's too easy it was to get out of Very hokey, wasn't it? I ha- I have um, a friend um, Tony Eccles who does comment now and again, and we we should read some of his stuff out. And the, one of the things is he's absolutely only sick if he to comments death, on the proper page, of course, Lee. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'll, I'll post it over. Um, he he does mention, and I think he's echoing a lot of people's uh, thoughts, mine as well, that the sonic screwdriver needs to be ground into the floor. Um, I'm, I'm fed up with it's, seeing it now. But, uh, well, the thing is, Matt Smith likes the prop. No, that's true. I know. I he, think he likes just to, enjoys waving it around. I'm not sure. Yeah, he likes it. There are moments in those scripts, and in The Crimson Horror in particular, there's one bit where he's walking down a corridor where he's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to scan, 
And because he's got nothing to do with his hands, he suddenly fishes out of his pocket and starts waving it around. Yeah. And so they put the sound <laughs> effect on. But And that's just Matt. It's not... It's like... If you want to get rid of the sonic screwdriver, you've got to get rid of the actor who's playing the Doctor because, you know, that's, that's who's a bit doing harsh. it. <laughs> well, that's the point. It's I mean, like it'd be nice if he it'd be nice if he got stepped outside the door and he just forgotten it for one episode and he couldn't get back into the TARDIS. It's like, okay, now sort it out. It's just <laughs> I would be yeah, more interested to uh, see how he could. But it, you're talking about the like character asking... there. It's not about the character. It's about the actor. It's the actor who likes playing with the prop, not the character. It would be like and having Peter Davison to... without the panting acting. Yeah. And having John Pertwee yeah. without him being a pompous twig. Or Tom <laughs> Baker without the curls and the scarf. <laughs> yeah. What are you on it about? Would be like, it would be like the Tom prop. Baker without the scarf. He's... Yeah, so? It's Matt... Matt it's, the sonic screwdriver is Matt Smith's scarf. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right. I, what do you, you're right. Do you know what do you find so annoying about it, though? Um, I think. Well, it, no, you know what I'm going to say. That it's used. If we just forget what you just said about uh, you know Matt Smith using it, it is used in the script and in the plot a lot to get out of things. I mean, that it's a prime example well, of him climbing into a small area while he's red. Um, I don't even know, know what that area was for, actually. What was it for? Anyway, he, he climbed into that small area and then put the sonic screwdriver on magic, and it made him better. Um, it's like, what? Yeah, they, Why? Uh, the area he climbed into presumably would be somewhere that releases the antitoxin that um that um emma peel actress's name gone straight out of my head diana rigg diana rigg's character is talking about earlier in the episode or later in the episode so, some point in the episode so spend she a few talks extra about yeah spend a few pardon? extra quid bbc spend a few extra quid and then just let let us see it come out of his body so at least we can see something's going on it just it just felt like a very easy option to to have that to you know in your hand and click the button and that it starts the thing off, um, mm, no. Every single episode has had that sonic screwdriver doing something. Yeah, but something. you're kind of missing the point there if you're thinking that because it's like at the end of Power of Three, it's like you've got two options. One option is press a button, and the other option is wave the sonic screwdriver. Which and by I hated. waving the sonic screwdriver, button. Which I hated. That was the worst part of that episode. Yeah, but would you have preferred he just pressed the button? Yeah, actually, yes. Well, yeah. okay. I think, he did that. I think if he pre- especially if he pressed the button and it lit up and said, "Please do not press this button again." <laughs> Why? What would be the plot logic behind that? Because it's like Douglas Adams, and I like Douglas Adams. It, well, you can't. Uh, uh, well, this is the point. You can't throw things in without plot logic. You have to have a reason for things. And okay, then you can get him solving some logic puzzles at the at breakneck speed or something. Um, you know, just redesign. I mean, the whole alien, why, the, the whole alien spaceship is so well designed. Logic puzzles, but but why would solving logic puzzles get the poison out of his system? Oh, what you mean in this one? I was, sorry, I was, I'm still on power of three. I'm talking about the specific instances of places where he'd used the sonic screwdriver. Oh, well, you name them then, and I'll give you a, a, a different. Well, way the end that of power of three. 
Well, he could press a few buttons. He could look confused. He could, you know, he could say, oh, maybe something from earlier in the script would have helped him, um, res- you know, uh, resolve the problem at the end of the script. It's just, it, we we all commented on that, that that bit seemed a bit kind of shoved in at the end. It was a bit kind of, you know. I didn't. I commented on the fact that it seemed entirely logical and plausible, and I was very happy with it. What? Just pressing a button? No, the fact that he didn't press the button, but that he waved the screwdriver instead, in place of pressing a button. I think some people might be on my side with this. <laughs> well, I think they are, which is why I think it's worth having this conversation. Yeah, um, I, I don't because know. Because you're I not think... giving me any decent reasons. What? Like, it comes out every three seconds. Okay, I don't like the noise. I'm fed up with the green thing being poked in my face when I'm watching TV. No, not reasons. And I I want him to get rid of it for a couple of episodes and deal with situations that don't need that sonic device doing everything from putting on your makeup to opening locked doors and killing Daleks. Lee, let me ask you this. Yeah. Have you ever had, do you have, have you ever used, or have you ever seen anybody use a smartphone I have and these people who have smartphones do they use them for other things than making telephone conversations yes they do and these people who have these smartphones do they use them very infrequently or do they have them out all the time doing all sorts of things and they're pretty constantly in their hands it's constantly in their hands which is my point the f- sonic screwdriver is the doctor's smartphone, Lee. I know. Why would not he have it out? <laughs> what, pardon? I hate smartphones. <laughs> yeah, but why wouldn't he have it out? Um, why wouldn't he be using it to do things? Be- because he's fictional and the writers could not give it to him for a second. So we can see him doing something other than going boss side and looking at the middle of the screwdriver. Which actually, um, the well, acting, he you know, does it so often now that I think he's just almost not acting it it's kind of like he's just looking in at it and, and i can't believe hide. it does he use yeah. the sonic screwdriver when he's running around in the woods yeah he did why when he was running around in the woods yeah why why was he using it did he i don't remember him using it then oh i can't remember maybe he was maybe he wasn't i've, I've got the image of him doing it now he said it but um mark you're still here yes hello. hello Mark. does he use it when he's running around the woods i can't remember to be quite honest you know, because people have this thing now about him using the sonic screwdriver all the time because Matt Smith does like to pull that prop out. But, you know, I'm convinced that it's in each episode for probably less than three minutes of the screen time. If you actually sat down and added up all the screen time where mm. the sonic screwdriver is out, I think mm. it would be like three minutes out of 45 each week. For, for every episode, that's a lot for a little prop like that. That's too well, much screen yeah, time. But I bet he doesn't no, get equity rates, that screwdriver. Hey, that is <laughs> one-fifteenth of the screen time. If you think about when people have smartphones and tablets and what have you, do they have them on, or their PCs or their laptops or whatever? You know, your technology. Do you have technology on for one-fifteenth of your do, waking life? Do you know Less what, than one-fifteenth? I'd love to see Matt Smith walk around with my tower and my old fat monitor and turn it on every time you had to solve a problem. That would be hilarious. But kind of the point is, the 45 minutes in which you 
visit the Doctor's life for the course of an adventure, for the course of an episode, is only a small part of the Doctor's life, and it is the part during which he will be in peril, and therefore during which he will have the sonic screwdriver at hand and be using it. It would make less sense to take it out than it does to have it in there. It's true. I if just you, think that you need to have it in balance a little bit, because, I mean... Tennant used it I quite a bit. I think it is in balance. I Ten- think Tennant used it quite a bit, but he didn't use it all the time. Um, and Matt Smith uses it all the time. You know, and then you, if you want to go back in time and you realise that it wasn't used that much and he had to solve things in a different way. He had to... Back in the 70s? Back in, you know, in the last 50 years. Yeah, but... On and off. Yes, but over those last 50 years, lots of things have changed. And not only has... Like the Doctor actually needs to have some kind of cool gun, which is what this is acting as. No, he never shoots people with it. What are you talking about? Look at the way he holds it and all the posters. That's how it's you like hold a gun. like pointing it out of the screen, like a... Mm, no, like a gun. Not. It's more like how you hold a spoon than a gun. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the point is, back in the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, people didn't have smartphones didn't have laptops, didn't have tablets, and so the precedent for using it after that fashion wasn't there. These days, the precedent for using it after that fashion is there. Back in the 1970s, if you had a computer on screen, look at the war machines, look at the computer in that. Mm. You know, that would be a laptop these days. And Boss in The Green Death, that would Mm -hmm. be a laptop these days. Mm -hmm. You know... Uh, it's the same with the sonic screwdriver. Back in the 1970s, mm. he'd use it. You know, back in there, I hear, I hear six... what, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's, it's a gadget that's on him all the time. It does everything. It's like a smartphone. It's a, that's a brilliant way of, um, you know, comparing it. Actually, it's a good analogy. Um, but you know, I'm one of those old-fashioned people that like problem solving so when he does keep bringing it out that's what personally i just feel like it'd be nice to for him to lose it a few times and to just go oh um well normally i do it with a screwdriver but uh right okay let's do it this way and and take the long way yes but i think you're missing the point i think you're missing the point of the narrative if you think he's solving problems with it he's not solving problems with it he's using it as a tool in order to perform the solving of the problem that he's already solved. Which is, For instance, which is in said. the power... <laughs> no, in order to do the physical part of it, <laughs> but the mental part of it, in the power of three, for example, he doesn't use the sonic screwdriver to solve the plot. Solving the plot is discovering what the mystery is, why these things are happening, who's behind it, and what's causing it all to happen. That's the resolution to the plot. Mm-hmm. And then at the very, very end, it turns out it's a machine that's just doing this all by automation. And in order to actually stop the plot, resolve it, you just turn the machine off, which he does with the sonic screwdriver. He just uses it as a tool, like the pressing of a button. But mm-hmm. the solving of the plot was the finding out that it was the machine that was doing it. So the yeah. sonic screwdriver hasn't solved the plot. It's just a tool that he uses right at the very end of the plot. To solve the problem, which is... Yeah, no, not to solve the problem, to turn the machine off. The machine can be turned off in one of any number of any ways. Okay. It's not the sonic screwdriver that solves that plot. It's the turning off of the machine. He just uses the instrument that he has that is there for that purpose to do the turning off. It's do you not like... also think that since the new series came back, 
because you're limited to 45 minutes it's you've got to be able to push the plot on rather than you know back in the the old days you could afford to have an episode where not much is going on you know you'd have like an old series six parter yeah where they're stuck somewhere and it just kind of treads water for that whole episode and it gets going again in the following episode whereas you can't do that these days well absolutely that's another part of it i wasn't really going to bring that up but you know there you go you've said it so that's another part of it too lee's gone now no no i'm here <laughs> uh, moving on from the topic of the sonic screwdriver we've actually spent more time talking about oh, the sonic screwdriver than mark gatiss um sorry somebody there i've lost you Hello. no i'm still here okay maybe not then um right here's the thing total recall love the film okay uh did you not either of you get that reference she pulls her shirt open and there's a creature living on her chest. Oh, God, yeah. Um, straight away, mm. as soon as I saw that, I just thought, oh, that's... Um, what's this? What was the name of the creature? It was a, a rebel oh, leader. It was something like Quato or something. Uh, Quato. Quato. Or some, it's something like that, isn't it? Um, yeah, Quantel, Quatel, Quasar, I can't remember what his name Quato. Was. Quato. Is that what it was? Anyway, yeah, yeah he was the rebel like leader, wasn't he? And as soon as I saw that, I kind of went, I looked at Mark and went, mm, you know, it's a, you know it's a bit like the time beetle moment where you think, ah, suddenly I've been taken out of the out of the episode uh, and the magic, and now I can see a plastic thing that's being controlled. Actually, yeah. I liked it. I did like it after a while. It, it, it grew on me. Haha. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> no pun intended. But uh, when I first saw it, I just thought, oh, and a strange, cute leech. That's bit rubbish but actually it was quite good i think the the crowning moment of that prop was it getting squashed by the blind woman that was brilliant yeah and the doctor going oh yeah uh, all right then (laughs) or we could solve it that way yes you didn't you didn't need sonic screwdriver for that did you (laughs) is it just my imagination or was there a stop motion animation shot in there that's your imagination when it was on the floor I don't know. Usually they'd CGI these things, but there's one shot that just looked like a stop motion. No, I'm Neither sure it was done, that. No, it's done like the Muppets, wasn't it? Oh, probably. I don't know. Yeah. There was one that just looked like stop motion, and I just thought to myself, I wonder if, just for Mark Gators, they've done a, you know, it's only half a second, so it's only like... <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's only a few frames, so I just thought to myself, I wonder if they've done it. Stop motion for Mark Gators, because he'd love that. Like a, a little present for Mark Gators. It's definitely one of his better stories. I would, I would put it. I think in, in terms of anyway. well, I think in terms of coherency, it's above all the other stories he's written, bar the Unquiet Dead. And you know, I think Russell T Davis probably wrote more of that than Mark Gators did. So, mm. I, I agree. I think it's up there with the Unquiet Dead as being his best, one of his best and strongest. Mm. Especially in tone. Um, when I say it was a story of two halves, I didn't mean that the, the tone was completely shifted. I, I did mean that it changed because the Doctor changed and you get a different kind of episode at the end. Um, and it didn't... Yeah, it just felt a little bit empty, but that tends to be a Mark Gatiss script. I love Mark Gatiss. I love everything about what he does. But for some reason, every time I watch one of his, I think, come on, a little bit more. A bit, he's a bit of a Tim Burton, isn't he? You know, come on, bit more, bit more, bit more depth. Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that about Tim Burton. Mm. Um, okay. Um, Sorry, did we just agree on something? Yes. Let's... I'm just picking myself up off the floor. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's. Well, we both agree on the subject of Mark Gatiss as well. So yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, let's score it, and then there's two more things to talk about, and then let's do the feedback. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, who wants to go first on the scores? Okay, I'll do it. Um, I think it will change the second time I watch it. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give it an eight just purely on the fact that it's better than his other ones and there's some great acting in it. The blind woman's good. The Scooby-Doo gang are back. Um, uh, Matt Smith and, and Jenna Louise Coleman are, are top form as always. They're perfect acting. Uh, there's some great uh, moments of going back into the past and saying things like Braveheart, Clara. I love that. Um, and it's set in Victorian age. i probably take a couple of points off for just Mark Gatiss's things that we've talked about already also the use of a jaunty old-fashioned camera to explain the um you know the story up to the point the doctor gets freed um right what, thanks why me. i asked you for a score and then said go on and talk about two why? things afterwards and why? because you've been wobbling why? on for so long <laughs> why what are you doing lee why why use the jaunty camera and the strange little effects why anyway i'll stop now Seven. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks, Mark. <laughs> no, I thought it was a, a decent episode. Um, I've seen ones that were stronger this season, but I think it's kind of middle of the road. So I think seven is a fair score for that one. Mm. Yeah, and I'm going to give it an eight because I have watched it twice and I did enjoy it as much the second time. It's by no stretch of the imagination a classic, nor will it ever be. But in terms of telling a story in an enjoyable fashion, mm-hmm. with a few little diversions to keep your mind occupied, uh, I thought it did a great job. And I'm surprised to find myself saying this about Mark Gatiss' episode, <laughs> but I did have a feeling that he would outperform his recent stories with this one, and I was right, I'm glad to say. And the two other things we were going to talk about, which, mm. you know, Lee's kind of spoiled for us. One is the really? flashback <laughs> sequence. Oh, really? I didn't realise you were going to bring that up. I thought well, this was the end. But no, I just asked you for your score, Lee. I didn't want a whole <laughs> I description it, uh, of the entire episode. We tend to, we, then, Jay. We, What's your thoughts on We tend to score at the end, so I just assumed that we'd finished, and I didn't want to miss that. But anyway, yeah, you carry on. I've said my piece. Uh, well, yeah, I did say there were other things I wanted to talk about, and one of them was the flashback. Uh, what did we all think of it? We heard what you thought of it, Lee. You hated it. Mm, I did. Mark. I think it's something different. I'd, they've used it a few more... T- oh, I can't even speak properly now. They've used it a few times more recently this season, sort of having little flashbacks. Um, I'm talking about the way it was presented. Oh, uh, this sort of old grainy film stock yeah, type yeah. of thing. Oh, I suppose it's a bit of fun, but... Uh, no, it isn't. It takes you out of the magic again. There's no reason for it. If there's somebody on the side filming with an old camera and they happen to be in it that makes uh that makes uh, writing sense but there was no reason to be if, to be presented but i do like the flashback the flashback's fine and also the hat was good the hat was a, a call back to fang rock i think that's nice i love the way they presented the flashback oh you poo face and if you're going to argue <laughs> about the fact that nobody would be there with a camera filming it then i would say to you then how come it's on our television screens in the first place 
Oh, don't be silly. And I think... Um, well, if you're well, going to get meta, I'm going to get double meta <laughs> on you. Well, come on. I so mean, it's, it's, the same, uh, it's the same problem I've got with uh, the, um, the Yorkshire giant... Yorkshire 1893. Yeah, I didn't even see that, actually. No doubt it was done in kind of like a... Coming out of a smokestack or something. It, was, it was like so... chalked on the side of a building yeah. on the brick or something uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? You've got to get with the times, Lee. No, it's no, no. Part no. of the Jr. Let's let's just part say part of a filmmaker's storytelling. Jr. Jr. You're, you're, gonna... you're a filmmaker. Jr. You're a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. I'm right? not a filmmaker. Yes, you are. You've made films and they're very good. But you you do what you do for a reason. You don't add anything superfluous to it to it if it doesn't need it. So therefore, it's just a gimmick, and it's so gimmicky that it just made me go, oh, why? You know, I don't know. I just I quite like them. I think it's. With the sort of setup they've got on Doctor Who, sometimes you need to explain where in history they are. So rather than just having a basic, boring font on the screen, they make it, they jazz it up a bit and they, they integrate make it part it. of the story, yeah. <laughs> nah. Maybe I'm on my own on that one. <laughs> no, you're not. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I don't. Didn't we have the. Um, Back when the ponds were in, didn't we have the um, a barbecue with some? Oh, forgot it. The sausages. Yes, <laughs> yes. that was great. <laughs> that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in Doctor Who. Oh, for goodness' sake! No, no, no. Oh my God, you've Bring got back. a Sontaran dressed up as a butler, and you're saying this is the stupidest thing you've ever seen in Doctor <laughs> Who because they integrate the subtitles into the actual the, action. No, no, the integrated. Not seen the Peladon stories. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't integrate, um, you know, Alpha Centauri onto the barbecue, did they? It's, uh, no, that's not what I meant. But, but um, no, they didn't integrate. Why make it into sausages? <laughs> what? Why? Because it's fun. It's the stupid, 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 stupid. It's the Glee generation, isn't it? No, I don't think it's anything to do with the Glee generation. Isn't it? Anyway, moving on, because... You know, this is going to go around in circles forever, just like the sonic screwdriver conversation. Oh, let's not get back not onto careful. that <laughs> um, Okay, the callbacks to the classic series. Right, oh, yeah. there are, these have been taking the form of two entirely separate things in each episode, haven't they? Mm-hmm. And there have been lots of little ones, right? But each episode has also had two more ostentatious ones. There has been a callback in the dialogue. And also there's been a kind of an homage in the plot. Now, going backwards, starting with last week, in order to illustrate what I'm talking about, in Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, we had not only a mention of State of Decay Mm. in the dialogue, which is a Fourth Doctor reference, we also have a runaround inside the labyrinthine TARDIS, which is a callback to... The Invasion Invasion of Time, time. Mm. as part of the plot. So if we stipulate, therefore, that there must be a mention in dialogue and an homage in the plot, well, the week before, which was Hyde, the mention in the dialogue was, well, the Metabilis 3 crystal. Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially, he could have put any crystal on her forehead and didn't even need to be a crystal, but, you know, they bring in the Metabilis 3 crystal or the Metabolis 3 crystal. And there's your mention in the dialogue. Mm. And the plot of Hyde, did you? Did I say this before? Or have you worked out which John Pertwee story it homages? 
I think, you, didn't you say it was um, Day of the Daleks? Yeah, it's a haunted house that's been haunted by a ghost, which is actually a traveller from the future. Mm-hmm. So that's Day of the Daleks. Week before, Ice Warrior found, frozen in the ice, mistaken for a mammoth, thaws out, runs amok, based under siege, the Ice Warriors. And then in the dialogue, you have the Hads. Mm-hmm. And the week prior to that, in the dialogue, you've got the mention of grandfather and having a granddaughter and so on. And I couldn't, I couldn't work out what story it referenced uh, in the plot, could I? No, no. And as anybody, censor right? Yeah, I just said that as a joke. <laughs> but then afterwards, it struck me what it was, and I've been waiting till this week to say it. Oh, go on then. Uh, well, unless either of you two have an idea no go on well doctor and companion brackets lands on alien planet where there are no humans only a wide variety of alien species all of whom are worshipping a further alien that has dropped out of the sky and is disguising itself as a god or idol to be worshipped sorry sorry Yep, it's the web planet, isn't it? The Rings of Akaten is the web planet. Bonkers. I know. Could we not have got... Are you, you calling me bonkers or the Rings of Akaten? <laughs> See, I, I, no, I'd not thought of it that way. I was thinking on, uh, on the first one, what was it called? The Bells of St. John, whatever it's called. Mm. Um, th- that it had a bit of a Wotan feel to it as well. It had a bit of a War yeah. Machines feel. It did, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure... Well, I, I'm not sure if that was quite as... Deli- or no, perhaps, sure. actually... The Rings of Akaten was a late addition to the running order. Maybe, maybe. So maybe the Bells of St. John was originally supposed to be the first Doctor one, with yeah. Cold War maybe perhaps originally going to be in second in the running order. Hmm. And perhaps the Rings of Akaten... It was a last-minute script, wasn't it, the Rings of Akaten? Yeah, he got asked... To, it wasn't quite last minute, but he got asked to do it after he'd done Hyde, so mm. all those episodes must have been settled at the time. Well, I think whatever it was that he was doing here, I'm not sure that it goes beyond this far anyway, to be honest. Having... I mean, right, in order for this to be a thing, there would have to have been a mention in the dialogue and when I say in the dialogue things like the Hads and the Metabilis Crystal I'm counting that because it's not part of the actual plot it's just you know a thing that's there Mm. a a mention a reference so there had to be in Crimson Horror there would have to have been a mention of something to do with the Fifth Doctor as Mm. well as an homage to some kind of a story from the Fifth Doctor well the mention you've got the mention is obvious right Mm. Mm mm-hmm Okay, that's the whole uh, running around after getting an air hostess back to Heathrow. Brave the Gobby Australian, yeah. Yeah, the Gobby Australian. Okay, Lee, you think you've got the plot? Go well, on. I don't know if I have got the plot, though. I have got a little bit, which I thought that reminded me of. Well, um, it doesn't need to be a big bit, because no. obviously Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS is as well. yeah. just based on... Oh, go on, then, because I haven't it, really seen... The Black Orchid. For what reason? For having a disfigured person hiding away in a an area of a house. And it's it was a similar kind of thing with the Doctor being locked away in that ghoul kind of thing. That just reminded me of a Peter Davison episode. But you've also... 
I'm sure there's something else that you'll be, you've picked up on that isn't what I've just said. I was thinking of the visitation. Actually, oh. Mark, you and I have come to the same one. Mm. Go on, give your reasons. Mm. Uh, it was fairly tenuous, but the whole thing of um, having this poison and trying to distribute it to kill off the uh, the humans. So you had the pteroleptals with the, the plague. Yes. The doctor had... arrives mm. in the countryside somewhere where all the people he meets are under the fluence. And obviously in this story it's not everybody, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, the, the aliens, for want of a better word, the bad guys, have put everybody under the influence and um, as part of a plot to poison the planet. Yeah, that's it's, better than the, mine. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Mark and I, we got it, the visitation. Now, Mark and I are going to have to seriously scratch our heads about next week's, aren't we? Um, yeah. Both having seen it. And, oh, really? Well, anyway, we'd better not say another word about it. But having seen it, we can't talk about the next time trailer. But, Lee, did you see the trailer for Nightmare in Silver? I did see it. I did watch it this time. And what did you think? Um, Scooby-Doo again, isn't it? Uh, thinking, A, I don't want to see kids going tagging along, especially kids that aren't haven't convinced me yet that they can act very well, especially at the end of that um, last sequence that seemed to be tacked onto the Crimson Horror. Um, I wasn't that impressed. Um, the uh, the fair, the nightmare fair idea. I'm glad they've kind of brought that back. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I hope it doesn't turn into a, a modern day version of the chase. But um, I am looking forward to Cybermen Jr. running. <laughs> And they look like they're going to. I'm really looking forward to seeing the new, powerful, deadly, very mobile-looking Cybermen. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know anything about what it's going to be underneath. I don't know what Neil Gaiman's thinking or what he's got planned. But um, I wasn't that impressed with it. But the more I thought about it, the more I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Neil Gaiman's going to do. Right. And on that note, let's move on to... Because Mark and I are not going to say a word. Let's move back on to um, a little bit of feedback, if I can call up the... uh, Okay, while I wait for Yahoo to load, here we go. Um, Oh, Graham Boyd. Very short email from Graham Boyd. He says, have you noticed that in the the behind-the-scenes documentaries, Mr Moffat is sitting in front of the storyboards for the anniversary episode, specifically (laughs) the Doctor hanging from the TARDIS? Just thought I'd mention it. So anybody here who'd like to see those storyboards sit behind Stephen Moffat, just look up some of these making-of documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, the Reverend Captain Hollow Poro says, <laughs> Dear Junior and the boys, Well, here's a turn-up. <laughs> Shout from the rooftops, JR. You're right. In your, Cold War, yeah, in your Cold War review, you stated only remake bad stories to make them better. You had so right. I had never considered this and only realised how bad Dalek was once I took your advice on board. As far as I'm concerned, Cold War had everything. No story arc pants, a self-contained story, stunning sets, a wet Clara and model shots. Yay, loved it. (laughs) In fact, we didn't really mention that last week, or the week before last rather, but um model shots you know they've pretty much been phased out in favor of cgi and here mm. we had some old-fashioned model shots we did i love the the model shot i presume is the submarine yeah 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 you could tell couldn't you and i and finn looked at it and he said oh, that looks a bit cheesy that's like 1960s yeah and i, think, that I was, think you could tell and i had the same reaction as finn 
I think it's the point. That was the point, wasn't it? It was it was a nice homage again. I hope. Well, they're I not going to go back it to the now. Seeing as they ditched the mill, ditched the mill. Oh my god, well, <laughs> the mill have gone, Lee. What? Yeah. Who does the CGI now then? Oh no, the, the mill have done the CGI up to the end of this series, and then they have uh, ceased production. Oh my gosh! So who's doing it next? Who knows? Well, wetter we'll work just easing you into a new era where it's all going to be models again. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, back to Captain Holoporo. Now, The Rings of Akaten, what I loved was that it was the first story to totally go no human links other than the Clara backstory, and I'm so proud that Doctor Who is now at a stage where it can dare to try something different without worrying about getting cancelled. And yes, I did love it. All three of the last episodes have felt like my era of Doctor Who, Tom Baker, and oddly seemed to make everyone else think of their era. How lovely for us all in this anniversary year. Yeah, I've... I've... Oh, now... Well, here's an interesting thing. He says um, that it's the well. He, basically, what he's saying there is it's the first story he can think of, apart from the fuck, apart from the ones which only have the regular cast, obviously, mm. things like Amy's Choice. But essentially, the only one he can think of where the entire guest cast are all aliens and have no human links whatsoever. So I said to him, I can think of one other story in which that's true. And I gave him a clue as to what that story would be. And my story was, my clue was, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And he said, well, that can't be right, because that's from The Big Bang. And, you know, the guest cast in that include humans. And I told him I was just being a bit um, disingenuous there. I was quoting from one episode to describe another. And actually, I was talking about the doctor's wife. Oh, you know, yeah. which features auntie and uncle, house yeah. and a nude, mm-hmm. but no humans. Mm-hmm. So anyway, anyway, back to Andy's email, and he says, now on to hide. Some things to consider about your concerns about the monster couple's age gap due to one being stuck in the pocket universe <laughs> for however many million years. It's an alien. Therefore, it doesn't have to follow the same rules as an Earth creature. Yes. Who's to say that spores don't pop off it and self-reproduces creating younger generations, each one eating its siblings until only one survives. Or hey, it could be younger than the Earth creature. Perhaps it can be the same creature but change its whole body. I don't know. Perhaps a sort of regeneration thing. Imagine that, regeneration. Or perhaps they simply never age. What we must remember is we can't judge aliens by our own rules. For instance, just last Tuesday, I poured vinegar on my arm and I didn't explode. Do you see? <laughs> yeah, I this think is a, what I think a lot of people were definitely barking up the wrong tree. Um, oh, I've done it again. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, no, you should drive the BBC. Tumbleweed. I think I think no, great idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think you should uh, definitely write for the BBC. There's some great ideas there. Mm. <laughs> just yeah, just maybe. just writing them down. <laughs> Anyway, a bit of commentary from him at the end. This is what happens when you're force-fed the human factor of the RTD era. We can start to forget that the Doctor and the Earth-bound aliens are not human. Well, the Doctor is half-human, but that's another story. (laughs) Well, love to you all, and I do wonder why the three-and-a-half-inch Ice Warrior figure seems to have a jolly smile on his face. Short (laughs) and grinning. Yeah, that's scary. From the Reverend Captain Hello Porro. Now, just after he sent this, I had another email from him, uh, like a postscript. He said, another thought, boys. All this debate over the pronunciation of Metabilis 3. 
Halley's Comet, Van Gogh, mm-hmm. Uranus, Hiroshima. The pronunciation of all of these has changed. Perhaps the Grand Council of Metabolis Three has complained to the BBC, and they have had to change it. Simple. Now move on. Ah, yes. Then he comes up with something rather odd. By the way, wouldn't it be a great idea to record some Bond-style theme songs for some Doctor Who stories? Which stories do you think sound like Bond titles? And he says, I think Inferno and City of Death. Cheers. Hello, Poro. Brackets. Misses. Is this just an excuse for you to do a bit of a Shirley Bassey, JR? <clears throat> Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> Will that do you, Mark? Yeah, I'll, I will get that recorded and uh, we'll put it on iTunes as a single. In the city of death. Yeah, I think that's 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 the better one. Can we do a whole uh, LP, me and you, Joe? Yes. That's the Wedding good. of River Song. <laughs> really? Yeah, you're going a little bit rock profiles here, aren't you? <laughs> well, well, it's okay. just the same song over and over again, but with the, the different title. <laughs> Well, I wanted to throw this out to our listeners, as I often throw things out to our listeners. I say often, about once every other month or something. And we don't usually get replies, but hey, you know, I'm not going to stop doing it. And maybe somebody will. If you are listening now, and you can think of a Doctor Who story that sounds like a should be a Bond story, and should therefore have, you know, a Bond theme... Why not either let us know what it is, or better yet, record yourself singing it and send us the audio file to blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. What a smart idea. Good grief. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping to get some Easter eggs out of those. Right. You may have opened Pandora's box there. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Right, that's the emails. Um, Wow, there's quite a lot from Richard Hogarth on facebook so i'll try and whip through it and just pull a few things out um he says oh while listening to your sixth podcast about colin baker's era uh he was thinking about dipping in and out do you remember i said about dipping in and out of the good and the bad when you revisit things you don't Mm. tend to watch all the stuff in order so you can pick out the good stuff and ignore Mm. the bad stuff yeah He, he says um have you ever attempted, like I currently am, in celebration of the 50th anniversary, watching all the stories in chronological order? He's in the thick of William Hartnell and is bogged down by boring stories. Not everybody loves the Aztecs. Uh, he uh, says his favourite classic era doctors are Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, who gave the stories a pizzazz and humanity that he doesn't think the other doctors did until the new series. He's looking forward to delving into eras he hasn't quite delved into yet, like Eric Sayward. And then he laughs. Well, yeah. Um, I have I have tried it. Uh, B Sky B tried running Dot Who from the start in the early nineties and then stopped. Uh, and then it carried on not with Sky B but I think UK Gold from John Pertwee's era if I remember remember right and I watched them all from that so there was this kind of huge gap but actually I realised that most of them were missing anyway <laughs> from between Gunnar Hartnell and John Pertwee so I probably kind of have watched them in order um, mm, but I no I, I rely on kind of bigger on the inside podcast to do that for me to be honest <clears throat> I quite enjoy Neil and Sue Perryman's uh, Adventures of the Wife in Space blog. Yeah. I'm just not sure I could put my own wife through all that, especially the recons. 
<laughs> that could be painful. That's cruel. <laughs> it is cruel. What we need them to do is animate everything so we can watch them all in order without having to resort to recons. Yeah. It'll happen um, to Levine if you're listening. Right, we're, we are overrunning now, so quickly back to Richard and then we can wrap up. Um, on the subject of Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, um, it was a phenomenal episode. By the end of it, he had gasped so much he had to call an ambulance. He needed <laughs> a strong cuppa and air. Matt Smith showed us how David Tennant should have been in the specials, angry but not melodramatic. He didn't want to leave, but sure, there is a difference between Doctor Who and EastEnders acting. Um, he wasn't uber-pumped by the trailer for Crimson Horror, but he's liked all of Ma- Mark Gatiss's episodes yet, even mm-hmm. Night Terrors, so he hopes he can deliver like with one. this one. Yeah. Um, Someone, someone's got it. Now, he asks a question. Uh, he says, Would you consider, when the series is done, doing a podcast on the script editors solely or the relationship with the producers? Uh, because after having finally caught up with us on our back catalogue, he... Uh, well, he's been listening to me banging on about Eric Sayward, but never fully letting fly. <laughs> and he wants me to do an Eric Sayward and Chris Beadmead podcast for the full hour. That's a great idea. <laughs> Wouldn't it just be one hour of just one long beat? <laughs> Probably would. Um, oh, he said in one episode we were trying to create a name from our initials. He says we should be called JMLS. Oh, that's good. Mm. No, I like it. <laughs> I like it. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, fo- let's form a band. JLS not is exactly um, a boy band, is it? Well, they split up. They split <laughs> up. Someone's got to, you know, hit the vacuum. Uh, he does. He did send one more message, but actually, I think I'll wait till next time to read this one out because he Ooh, asks us a question at the end of it, and I think I'll do that when Simon's here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. So, Richard, your next one will appear in our next episode when I can ask all of us. Um, because uh, next time it's Nightmare in Silver, and I cannot imagine any of the four of us missing out on that one. Do you think um, Simon's going to enjoy the Crimson Horror, guys? I guess we'll find out at the start of next week's episode. Yeah. Um, I, think I don't know if the strap will. factor will put him off a bit, maybe. No, maybe... Hmm. We'll I find don't know out. actually that's a odd one I would like to think so I I can see that the Crimson Horror is probably going to not jive very well with a certain kind of fan maybe jive? jive. Yeah. what century are you from? <laughs> hey I couldn't think of the word I wanted and that was the word I thought of Daddy but you know up. what I'm saying Actually, yeah. it's weird because I suspect that people who loved Cold War will hate this and vice versa, which is obviously... Maybe. Anyway, I think it's time we should call it a night. It is. I, can so, I just, just say one last thing? That I'm enjoying the posters that seem to be coming out. The Nightmare and Silver poster is particularly awesome. Mm, yeah, um, they are cool. They are very cool and they're very cinematic. So, well done whoever's organised that. Pat on the back. Right, next week, Nightmare in Silver, then. (laughs) Uh, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And we will speak again soon.
Piddlesticks.